Welcome to our first week in our new series, Mad at God, a study of the book of Jonah. So we're going to take a look at chapter one today out of four chapters, so be sure to come here next week and the weeks after uh, to see how the whole story of Jonah, the wayward prophet, plays out. Uh, prophet, he was mad at God. Before we jump into our consideration of today's message, Mad at God, on the run, let's open with prayer. Sanctify us by the truth, O Lord. Yes, call us to be your own. Call us to no longer run by your word, for your word is truth. Amen. Quick question for you. How many of you are pretty good uh, in engaging those who are in conflict with you? Pretty good at that? Anybody? Well, good. Then I think I'm in good company because I'm, I'm not really good at conflict. I don't like conflict. I, I run away from conflict. At least that's my impulse. And who of us wants to have a discussion, wants to encounter people that don't like you or people that are at odds with you? But as I thought about conflict today and I thought about this prophet Jonah, who I think can relate to us and we to him, I started to think too about in the counseling world how there are different approaches for approaching conflict. In fact, did you know there are about five different ways that you can approach those that are in conflict with you or you with them? And I thought maybe we'd go through five different styles and kind of see which one Jonah lands on and maybe which ones uh, we tend to follow too, and not for the betterment of the relationship per se. And because it's the 4th of July weekend, I thought I'd make it pretty practical, just in case you experience this at the, the barbecue, backyard barbecue. Here are five ways that you can handle uh, when maybe you run out of hot dogs. Okay, so, so let's say you're grilling up some hot dogs, or I know we're in Wisconsin, so for you brat fans, if you like beer brats or whatever, I actually do. My kids don't like brats, so I buy a bunch of brats for me. I never run out. They like hot dogs. So for our younger ones, if you really love hot dogs, and you're in a little bit of a pickle, because that's, that, that's for hamburgers. Okay, so here's what you do if there's only one hot dog left. One way, and maybe fill in the blanks, I got a list of all five, you can accommodate the others. Whoever else wants that hot dog. That, that means this, it's not so fun, you lose in order to win the relationship. So the conversation might go like this, like, ah, oh, look, there's only one hot dog left. You want it. I can tell you're salivating all over yourself. So you want that hot dog? You know what? I've already had 30, so I don't need any more. Why don't you enjoy this hot dog? There's some relish over on the table, some mustard ketchup. Enjoy the fourth. It's my gift to you, right? You accommodate. You lose. You end the conflict to win by losing. Suppose another approach, because that doesn't always work, because if you really want that hot dog, as so often maybe, maybe we do, or brat, you might say, I'm not giving that up. Is there another way then? Well, I suppose you could compete for it. This is where you win, but probably lose. If you, most of the times when you compete, it just doesn't go well because we often compete against the other person. Uh, I, I think about, I had two older brothers growing up. So we always fought for the last piece of pie or pizza or hot dog or whatever. So it usually goes this way. What, there's only one hot dog left? Hey, that's mine. My older brothers would say, look, I'm bigger, I'm stronger. What are you going to do about it? So I always had an ace up my sleeve. This is how you win when you compete for food, right? You grab it and you lick it, and then they don't want it. So actually the problem was with my older brothers, they didn't care. 
They're like, you lick that all you want. That's still mine. So, okay, that's weird. But we often compete against the other person. So we might win the battle. You might get that hot dog, but you lose. You lose, right? It's just now there's bitterness that sets in. There is a way to compete. I'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, we could compromise a little bit. That's where you both lose to win. So there's that hot dog again. And what do you do? You say, all right, let's cut it in half, right? You take one half and the other. And wise parents would often say, all right, whoever cuts it, the other one picks. So that way it's absolutely equal. You can do that. You can say, look, okay, we don't get the full hot dog. Maybe you're a little hungry. I'm a little hungry. But at least we both have somewhat of a hot dog. So you, you compromise. That works if both are willing to lose a little. But often in conflict, people are not willing to lose at all. So what do you do? You could collaborate. That's another approach. This, this works if both are willing to help each other. If we, we work together to win. Sorry, it's a lot of hot dog talk. So there's a hot dog on the grill and you're like, look, look, you're not the only one who wants one. I want, everyone wants one. Everyone's salivating. Let's run off to quick trip real quick. You buy the buns, I'll buy more hot dogs. Throw on the grill, take about 20 minutes, we're all good to go. So you work together. Again, ideal if the other one is willing and if the other one's reasonable. A lot of times people are not reasonable in conflict. The last approach is to avoid. This is what I would say is where you gamble in the hopes of winning, but probably against all odds. This is where you just kind of ignore the situation. And at the barbecue, everybody's kind of like, oh, there's only one hot dog left. Who's going to take it? Who's going to take it? So when nobody's looking, maybe you swipe it or somebody else does, and you hide off in the corner and you just eat it, and there's crumbs on your face or theirs. And everybody's just upset because everybody wanted that. I, you know what? I guess I'm pretty hungry. I just want hot dogs right now. That's all I'm thinking about. So, but we avoid we avoid and we just hope the problem goes away. And by my pastoral experience, I would suggest to you of the five, I think the fifth one is the most popular one today. Maybe it's always been this way. Maybe this is just our natural default. When there's a problem, I want nothing to do with it. Relationally, especially, I get all worked up about it. So I'm just going to ignore it. And I'm just going to pray it goes away. But oftentimes, when it's a big conflict, and especially relationally, that is never the approach that's healthy. It just ends with consequences that we might not recover from. Which reminds me of Jonah. So if you wanted to circle any, Jonah was the avoider. That's how he approached conflicts of a great magnitude. Especially relationally with God. He was mad at him, and so he wouldn't listen. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, uh, that's okay. We're going to be covering it today and in the next three weeks, so you don't want to miss it. But if it's familiar to you, let's just start from the the beginning. Uh, We're about ready to read from chapter one, and we're going to see where God calls Jonah to go to an enemy city called Nineveh. It was the capital of a rising empire, the Assyrians, who had really ruled the known world probably for some 200 years. And they were just on the rise. Uh, This is probably around 800 B.C., maybe upwards of 750 B.C., uh, the time when Israel was also gaining in power. 
In, in a worldly sense, under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel at the time of Elijah and Elisha, Israel was actually gaining in power and strength. They were at odds with Assyria. Assyria would actually destroy them completely wipe them out. So when God calls Jonah to go to the heart of Assyria, Nineveh, and to preach to them a message of hope with the start of repentance, this was the enemy of God's people. And the writing may have already been on the wall, and Jonah could not believe God's audacity that he would love such an unlovable people. And so what did he do? He was the avoider He runs away. We're going to take a look at him and see how he's not an example to follow at all, even if we often follow that. We're going to see the consequences that we bear because of it, but then we're going to find hope in Jesus, as we always do. He who bore the sign of Jonah was also buried, but not because he ran, but because he was resolved to end conflict. So a very hopeful message we'll see at the end of Jonah 1. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. We're going to see the conflict develop. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, later on in Jonah 4, Jonah's going to say, Here, Lord, this is why I didn't want to go because I knew if I preached against it, that you might rescue them. They might actually repent and be sorry and you would save them because you're a God of grace. I want nothing of it. And so now this develops. And by the way, just to kind of understand Jonah's calling, how difficult it was. It would be like calling a Jewish rabbi in the 1930s, 1940s to go to the heart of Germany, Nazi Germany in Berlin and preach against the Nazi regime and Hitler in the hopes that they would repent and be saved. Now, what Jewish person would want the salvation of Nazi Germany? So that's what Jonah's up against, and what does he do? Well, he escapes, well, tries to. Uh, Verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. That seems to be modern-day Spain, about as far west as you could get in the known world. And he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. Uh, Joppa's still around today. It's called Jaffa. I was actually there in 2010. It's a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. Well, it was interesting. The first city that we we saw there uh, in that port city, there's this big statue of a big fish. (laughs) So I thought it was hilarious. Wow, okay, yes, this is where Jonah got on a boat. I don't know if they were trying to warn others, like, be careful. Out of this city, you might be swallowed up by a big fish. I don't know. But it is a historical account By the way, Jesus proves it's historical in his reference in Matthew 12. So after paying the fare, he went aboard and settled for, or sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. That phrase comes up again, to run away, flee from the Lord. It's kind of laughable, don't you think? I mean, can you you run away from God? The psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the depths, you're there. Where was Jonah headed to escape the Lord? And yet, though we might laugh at that a little bit too, recognize this. Anytime we run from conflict that we need to run into, are we not doing the same? Mad at God, can't believe he would call me to such things, and mad with the world. 
And so we can sympathize with Jonah here who was on the run. And now here's some of the consequences. Verse 11 and following. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, or I should go back, verse 4 and following. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors that were sailing that ship, they, they realized somehow this was a divinely instituted storm. And they cast lots, and they found out that Jonah had something to do with it. So they inquired about him, and they tried to see what they could do to, to save Jonah, knowing he's a prophet from God. But now verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So they were terrified. They recognized, okay, this God of, of Israel has started this storm, and you're his prophet, and, and now you want us to throw you overboard, even though you might be the cause of the storm? I don't think so. So they kept fighting the storm, but it kept getting worse, till finally they ran out of all their options. And then verse 15, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm, kind of like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, be still. Skipping ahead another verse, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, <clears throat> and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So those are the consequences, being in the belly of a fish when you run away from conflict that we need to encounter. I guess as I read through Jonah chapter 1, and that's the end of it, I might ask you, how about you? Right now, I want you to name your conflict or think about the person you're at odds with or the people. Could these words of Jonah, these opening words, be said about your story in your life right now or in times past or maybe very soon in the future. The word of the Lord came to you today in a message like this. Don't run, but face the conflict. Resolve that conflict with grace. And we fill in our name to that story. He says, go to that great conflict with someone and preach against it. Notice, not against them, but against it. Maybe they're at fault, maybe you are, maybe both. So preach against it for the sake of the other. Because its wickedness has come up before me. I don't want division among people. I don't want any division at all. Now, could it be said of your response or mine, but fill in your name, ran away from the Lord? I want you to take a moment right now, and I want you to think about that someone. And if you would even dare, write it in your bulletin there, the name of that certain someone. If it's your spouse and you're sitting right next to them, don't write their name. <laughs> Maybe write, draw a fish. In fact, don't write anybody's name. Just draw a fish. There's a problem you're facing, and your tendency, like mine, is to run. Learn from Jonah. That never works. And you might get mad at God because he's telling you, do not run, but trust in your Lord and Savior. In fact, we'll see this in a moment. He says it for your blessing. 
He says it to rescue you from bitterness, to enjoy forgiveness, and to celebrate the rescue of someone else. And if we run, who's going to resolve the conflict? Will they? Because my guess is, since it's not resolved yet, they've been running too. What are the consequences if we don't go? You, you might not face a storm. You might be, not be looking at the belly of a fish. But if we are not so moved by God's grace, to give grace, the depths that we face are far worse than the depths of the ocean or whatever fish may come. I mean, this is life and death stuff in an eternal sense, isn't it? We, we got to get this conflict issue right. And avoidance is not the way. So where do we turn? Where, where do we find encouragement? Where do we find then guidance after being so blessed by grace? It's Jesus, isn't it? It's always Jesus. It's always Jesus who is the focus of all our preaching and teaching. He is the one who did everything well, and he did it first and foremost, not as an example, but to save and rescue us who were in conflict with God. So what I want to do now is I want to take a look at the one who bore the sign of Jonah, Jesus, and consider his approach to conflict. And we're going to find that Jesus was not an avoider, but rather he was the opposite. He was incarnated. He was incarnated. That's a fancy word we might throw out there. A lot of times Advent or Christmas, when Jesus takes on flesh and blood, becomes one of us, becomes Jesus Christ. Uh, in carne, just it's Latin, into flesh. Carne, uh, like carnivore flesh, meat. Into flesh. I love that we have that term incarnated. It is truly the opposite of avoider. Because when Jesus took on your flesh and mine, even though we were in conflict with God, that was God's sign to you. He's not running away. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, he loves you so much, he dignifies our humanity by becoming one with us, incarnated. Think about how opposite Jesus is as we consider this passage from Hebrews chapter 10, 5 and 7. The Christ says, a body you prepared for me. Here I am. It is written about me in the school. I have come to do your will, O God, incarnated, present in the midst of conflict with people opposed to him. He does not run. You can see the implications then for us. What do we do with people that we're in conflict with, especially in those relationships, in marriage, or with our children, or family, or friends, or even strangers? We do the opposite of run, but we become present. We go with them, relying on God's promises in all humility, just like our Savior who won our salvation. Now, this is what I love, too, about Jesus. We talked about the five ways you can encounter conflict. Did you know Jesus employed all of them in the perfect way to save us and now as his people for us to follow? So think of Jesus and how, well, he accommodated us. I, I think about a passage in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
Accommodate means really to lose, right? You lose it all in order to win the relationship. Is this not what Paul tells us about Jesus? He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had it all. Yet for your sake, he became poor, lost it all, so that you, through his poverty, might win, might become rich in every way. (laughs) It's like that barbecue again. There's one hot dog left. What's Jesus say? Take it. It's yours. And not just that, but all the fixings. And I'm going to give you a 10-course meal on top of it, and I will pay the price. All of it. Because I don't want any more conflict between us. I love you. He lost it all to win us back. And he won us back. Again, you see the implications? So moved by such love. How is it that we could be at odds with any other Christian? And even those who are non-Christian... As much as it depends on us to be peacemakers, how can we not be willing to lose it all so that we might have a chance to win them over? That's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, go the extra mile with people. If somebody wants uh, uh, your, your shirt, give them your coat too. Give and give again, sacrificially accommodate. And that'll work If the other one sees they've been loved, faith. But whatever the case, Peter says it's worth it. Suffer for doing good. Now, there's another way that Jesus approached conflict. He actually competed. And I just have a couple sections of Scripture, Matthew 4 and Matthew 27, kind of outlining Matthew 4. That's where we see Jesus tempted by the devil. Think of this. In order to win you and me back, Jesus became the greatest competitor. But he didn't compete against you. He didn't compete against me. He competed against everything that was separating us from God. He competed against the devil in the wilderness. He bore every temptation and yet he prevailed. And then Matthew 27, he fought against Judas' sinful nature. Peter's sinful nature. He fought against the Sanhedrin. He fought against Pilate and against the wayward Gentile rule. All of us he endured, even being crucified, and yet battling death itself, he prevailed. Jesus competed against everything that kept him from you, from me. And now we are saved. Again, the implication for conflict If you compete when there's an argument, if you compete when someone's at odds with you, the battle is never against them. If you're at odds with your spouse, you don't fight them. If you're at odds with your kids, you don't fight them. It's not about you winning, it's about you fighting against whatever is separating you from them. Just like Jesus did for us. He's the master conflict resolver. How important it is to keep our wits about us when we're in conflict because they might be competing with you, but if you in love compete with whatever's getting in the way, whatever arguments are senseless or whatever, and humbly taking it to win, 
to win your relationship, you are being like Jesus. How about number three? Did Jesus ever compromise? Well, never truth, never grace, but he does call for a compromise. Compromise is really just two people accommodating the situation. And I think about Romans 6, 2 and following. Paul tells us, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When you think about baptism, do you recognize it as Jesus winning you over to himself by his own death? And when you are baptized, you experience that same death with Jesus and you now also lose You lose all that was killing you so that together you might win. Jesus, he shows that we also now compromise. We give up all that caused us to be in conflict with God, our sin, so that together we may walk in harmony and in peace. Again, think about how that works in everyday relationships and conflict. If you're at odds with somebody else and you win them over by accommodating and you win them over because you compete against whatever is separating you, then love has such a way that they'll stop. They'll start giving up whatever is causing the conflict. So there's kind of a progression here, isn't there? Accommodate, compete, and then compromise. And when things go really well, you can start to collaborate. And Jesus also did this. Again, not to bring us to our salvation. After we were saved, now Jesus calls us to be great conflict resolvers ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21, and then Matthew 28, Jesus says, look, I'm not going to call on angels to proclaim the good news. I'm going to enable you to bring this good news to end conflict between people and God and you and everyone else. In 2 Corinthians 5, this is where Paul says, God was not holding men's sins against them. And then he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. What defines a Christian, above all else, I would suggest to you, is the ability to resolve conflict. Conflict between people. And how does the Christian do it? Through the forgiveness of sins through confession and absolution, sin and grace. Be like Jesus, who after winning our salvation, ending the world's conflict, commissions us to end that conflict too by preaching the good news. And the last one, did Jesus ever avoid anything? Suppose I do need to qualify my words from the beginning. I suggested to you that it's never good to avoid conflict. And when it comes to relationships, it isn't. But it is good to avoid whatever is unnecessary. We see that with Jesus in Mark 1, 45. Jesus would actually avoid certain places in preaching the gospel. Why? Because there might be so much conflict there, it would be of no good. So he went to remote places to avoid unnecessary conflict to share the gospel. 
And in fact, throughout his ministry, whether we're talking about his being tested in this final week by those who are just trying to discredit him, talking about paying taxes to Caesar, or by what authority are you doing this, or John, that baptism of his, Jesus never fell into the trap. He avoided useless conversations. In fact, again and again, when people were accusing Jesus relentlessly so that they might put him to death, he didn't say a word until finally they asked, are you the Christ? And he said, yes, it is as you say, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming to judge the world. Jesus avoided all unnecessary conflict. He avoided whatever conflict which would hinder the gospel. And again, dear friends, do you, you see how that is everything we should keep in mind when we're at conflict with somebody else? So often, our conflicts, they boil down to fighting about hot dogs. It's ridiculous. We pick at this, we pick at that, and it's meaningless. It's smokescreen after smokescreen when the real issue needs to be resolved. And so when we see Jesus take it all and he just remains silent until the issue at hand becomes the greatest issue, salvation, gospel, reconciliation, we can do the same thing. No matter what you're accused of, no matter the little things that your loved one might pick at, just take it. And finally get down to the heart of what's wrong, the need for grace, the need for forgiveness, the need for Christ's love to mend it all. And so, Jonah, don't be like him. <laughs> but instead, so loved by Jesus, be like our Lord. And pray to God, don't be mad at him, that he's called you to such things. Just pray to God that he'd let love win the day. And God has a way of making love win the day. I mean, who would have thought that Jesus crucified on a good Friday, that in three days he'd live again? Nobody in that generation. But after he came out of the belly of the earth, everything changed. And the conflict was over. God has a resurrection for you too. And whatever relationship is broken, may God resurrect that relationship soon. Amen.